Good. Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 2 Timothy 3. The Doctrine of Inspiration. Today is our final day in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and it is indeed an important one. In these two verses, we find the basis for the doctrine which we often call the doctrine of inspiration. It's a doctrine which is absolutely foundational to the operational framework of the Church of Jesus Christ. We've often spoken about the importance of objective truth to our understanding of how the world operates. That there be objective realities in this world and that I have no right or ability to choose what those truths are is essential. To recognize that it is my responsibility and right not to define truth, but to identify truth and to align with it. And this very claim itself is one which has become very much under assault in our day, has it not? This is not the first time that this has been the case as it relates to society. Any number of times as we study through history, oh, we can see instances where um, people have um, claimed a malleability of truth. They have denied objective truth. They've denied this concept of absolute truth. And to that end, we see, as we kind of spoke about last week, that history has a rhyme to it, right? That we see the same errors, the same problems cropping up time and time again. And we're very much in another time in history where absolute truth has been... Um, relegated to the sidelines. You'll often hear people speaking in modern culture uh, about this idea of, of people speaking their truth. I'm going to speak my truth. This is a tacit admission that there is no objective reality, that reality is only constructed by my experiences, by my perceptions, that reality is, is, is based upon me, that I construct reality, and that reality as I see it is going to be different from reality as you see it, but reality as I see it is still real, therefore you must understand it and bend to it. And when we have this sort of a mindset, reality is what I say it is, not what actually exists. And this is why we live in a society that is so confused today, a society where people can make outlandish claims, and if anybody objects to those outlandish claims, or not even objects to them, but does not go along with those outlandish claims. If a person who is a man claims to be a woman, and not only do you allow him to think this way, but you must play into his fantasy. And if you do not do so, then somehow there's something wrong with you. This is a society that has lost all bearings on objective truth. And biblical Christianity has, by God's grace, historically chosen a different path. We, by faith, believe that objective truth exists regardless of whether I regard it, regardless of whether I want it, regardless of whether I like it. Within this worldview, the objective is not to define truth. It's not to create truth because we can't create truth. It is to identify truth and then willingly align myself with the truth that I have identified. We then take things one step farther in the Christian worldview and we recognize that God has chosen in his mercy to give mankind a written revelation of these truths so that it is not even my responsibility to have to find these truths, but only to submit to the truths that God has already given to me. So the Bible forms then an essential link, does it not, between God's design in this world and mankind's responsibility to identify that design and to align with it, between the truths that God has created and indelibly written in the heavens and me identifying those indelible truths and aligning with those uh, uh, indelible truths. And the Bible is the link between that. And the doctrine of inspiration forms the first part of that link. The first link in the chain that teaches us how it is that God has gone about preserving truth for every generation of mankind. So today we're going to learn about the Bible. 
about its inspiration. And then I'm going to go uh, beyond that, and we're going to talk then about its preservation and the confidence that we can have in scriptures today. Now, the doctrines of inspiration and preservation are large topics. I go through them quite thoroughly in our About Legacy course, and if you've not taken that class, uh, walking through the various elements of what we believe in certain subsets of church doctrine, I'd encourage you to do so. Um, We normally take two or three weeks, two-hour sessions, uh, getting through the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. I'm going to summarize it here within uh, the, the scope of the next hour or so. I'll do my best today to summarize this information, but just know there's a lot more to it than what I'm going to talk about today. And we might end up doing a mini-series in in the near future about it just to kind of get everyone on the same page as it relates to these things. So we step into the text today, and it's only two verses, verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the Bible says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The doctrine of inspiration at its heart tells us that the scriptures are an intentional work of God that has been given by God to mankind for mankind's benefit. The word inspiration here literally means God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. That scriptures are not a compilation of man's thoughts, man's ideas, or even at its very heart of man's words, but that God has designed creation according to a set of definitive standards, that God has designated beginnings and endings, he's designated blessings and cursings in accordance with the standards that he has created. He has chosen then to communicate these things to mankind and that he has done so through a series of documents which he commissioned to be written by his servants over the course of some 1,000 years of human history. And take note of the progress of this thinking here. If we're going to believe that the Bible is truly inspired by God, as the Bible states it is, then we're going to first have to align with other fundamental assumptions about, or, or, or foundations, I guess, fundamental assumptions, or we would say foundations. And these fundamentals are attested to in the scriptures themselves, but they're fully observable in the world around us. In other words, I'm going to peel back a couple more layers and lay a bit of a deeper foundation than just the Bible is the inspired word of God uh, in order to build it back up. So creation itself testifies to the foundation upon which God then builds the fullest revelation of himself. And the first is the one that we've already talked about in part. The first element of this foundation is the reality that absolute truth exists, regardless of whether I know it, believe it, or agree with it. There are a set of absolute standards by which things operate, and I can do nothing to change that. Whether or not society likes it, every day mankind operates, not only under the fundamental assumption of absolute truth, but under the fundamental necessity of absolute truth. We have certain fundamental things which we've identified and by which we live this life. The easiest ones to understand are those that are rooted in the physical world around us. Physics, mathematics. Take gravity for an example. Every day I wake up, I get out of bed, and I expect that my feet will touch the floor and not float up into the atmosphere. This is a fundamental principle, a consistent truth under which whether or not I want to acknowledge it, I must operate under it if I'm going to operate functionally. Everything I do in life operates within the scope of my fundamental understanding of gravity. Now, I may not understand that gravity is negative 9.8 meters per second squared. I may not understand why gravity exists because of various elements of proximity of bodies to each other and such. But it doesn't mean that I don't know it's there and I don't operate within a fundamental consistency with it. And if I choose for some reason to disregard gravity, to redefine gravity, this in no way changes gravity itself. If I wake up tomorrow and I say gravity doesn't exist, I can walk around saying gravity doesn't exist, If I decide that every place that there's a a mathematical formula that accounts for gravity, I'm going to redefine that formula. It's not going to be negative 9.8 meters per second squared anymore. It's going to be uh, negative 
12 meters per second squared. I can do that. And I can write that into all the books. And I can build airplanes and everything else based upon it. But it's not going to change the fact that when I try to put that airplane in the air, it's not going to work anymore because I'm not accounting for things properly. It didn't change reality as it exists just because I redefined it in my mind. It doesn't change the fact that when I step onto the scale, my weight is going to be based upon the pull of gravity upon me, and I can't change that. Whether I believe it or not, if I walk off the end of a building, gravity will impose its truth on my body, no matter how much I try to will it away, no matter how much I try to insist it's not there. And one will say, well, yes, pastor, but you can overcome gravity. You talked about the airplane. Well, absolutely you can if you employ other laws, right? If I employ other laws of physics, other inbuilt absolute truths, I can harness a certain absolute truth like thrust and lift, the absolute truths of air, re air resistance and coefficients of friction to mitigate the effects of gravity so that I can fly through the air in a machine. But I haven't made gravity go away because if I lose thrust and so lose lift, gravity will impose itself on me quite quickly. I haven't made them go away. I've only harnessed other coexisting absolute truths, other principles built into creation, and used them to change the relationship I have to the unchangeable essence of gravity. We could walk through this principle any number of ways, right? In physics, and math, biology, one by one, and find that there is a certain created order to this world. And whether I agree with it or not, whether I acknowledge it's there or not, it exists, and there's nothing I can do about it. And what's important to understand here is that mankind didn't invent any of these things. Gravity was not invented. It was discovered, right? We operated under a fundamental assumption that when I take a step, one step in front of the other, my foot is going to hit the floor every time. By the way, if we lived in a random chance world, it might be that one second we're here, the next second we're floating up into the sky, because gravity has all of a sudden changed. But it doesn't do that because we're not in a random chance world. We're in a designed world, right? We didn't invent these truths, only rather through careful op ob observation, through careful study, through careful thought, we identified these truths, we categorized these truths, we systematized these truths in a way that can be understood and taught. And so now we have this branch of physics, and through it we can understand coefficients of friction, and we can understand the, um, the uh, effect of one object of mass upon another object of mass. We can understand the laws of thermodynamics and uh, conservation of energy and all of these things. But we didn't create any of those things. We only discovered them, identified them, and systematized them into a way that they can be taught from generation to generation without having to reinvent the wheel. And for all people that live in denial of absolute truth, nearly every aspect of our daily lives depend upon a fundamental assumption of these basic truths in order to live. If electricity does not operate according to clear and definable laws, you wouldn't be holding a phone in your pocket. There would be no way you could functionally use it because electricity would, would be erratic. If combustion did not operate according to clear and definable laws, you wouldn't be driving cars to get here. The only reason why you can drive around in little explosion factories with confidence is because you know that every time you turn on your car, the laws of physics will remain intact. You know that the mixture of the fuel with the oxygen and the spark plug and the combustion is going to take place in a certain way. I know you drive diesel and you're saying, Pastor, you've totally lost me here. Just, just follow me, okay? Do, do your best. But you know it's going to work in a certain way because the laws of physics are constant. Because it was built in alignment with absolute truth and the principles of the created order. So, 
I understand that there are rules that must govern this world. Rules which, whether I know them or not, I must operate under them if I'm going to find any measure of success in this world. Rules which, if I am in any way honest with myself, bear the marks of design and they are designed by something outside of the system itself. Therefore, having the reality of a creator is undeniable. So scripture tells us in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And again, in Psalm 97, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. So then we find that the scriptures attest to the reality of God as proved in, the, in God's created order. And that this created order itself testifies to the existence of absolutes by which the world is designed and through which the world functions. Now follow me. If the creator God has designed the physical world to function according to a set of definitive standards, then it should not surprise us if we were to find out that every aspect of this world, not just the physical and the material as it relates to physics and mathematics and biology and such, but also the metaphysical, the spiritual and emotional, operate under a set of definitive rules and standards that God has not just designed into the creative order the physical attributes by which the world functions, but also the metaphysical attributes by which the world functions. And if indeed we find that God has ordered how lives should be lived, then just as it is essential to our well-being that we identify and understand how we relate to the physical design of this world so that we can harness its design to flourish and prosper, so too, it would be essential to our well-being that we identify and understand how to relate to the metaphysical design of this world so that we can harness its design to flourish and prosper. Now, for generations, people operated under the assumption of gravity without knowing what gravity was, without knowing how to define it in mathematical terms. So too, a large portion of this world operates under the assumptions of morality without knowing what it is by which they, through which they operate, without knowing the nature of, of the connection between the moral principles by which they're living and the metaphysical, the spiritual and emotional effects of them and the design of the creator God. But what's wonderful about the creator, the, uh, our creator God as it relates to the emotional and the spiritual is whereas it took man developing math and developing science and working through the various process of understanding uh, the design of this world to get to the point where they would be able to identify things such as gravity. When it comes to the emotional and the spiritual, when it comes to the metaphysical, God laid it out for us. God gave us a textbook. And the scriptures are the record book of special revelation of God to man related to these truths so that man does not have to just figure them out on his own. God has given them to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, Moses speaking to the nation of Israel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote this. For this commandment which I command thee this day is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldst say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 10 as well. The scriptures bear record that God has a design by which mankind is intended to operate metaphysically. That man has been given a free will by which to choose whether or not to, to do so, to align with it. But also that our creator God has made his expectations very clear to his creation. God has not demanded that man ascend into the heavens, climb to the highest peak in order to find out his will to find out his design. He has not demanded that men go to the bottom of the seas or beyond the seas to find it. Much to the contrary, God said, my word is very nigh to you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart. And notice the reason, that thou mayest do it. 
God didn't put us in a grand and elaborate escape room whereby we bear the burden of figuring out the mystery and piecing together obscure clues, rejecting all of the red herrings he's put in place to divert us from the actual goal in order to find out how to open the door to him. Much to the contrary, God has put a bunch of flashing neon signs pointing directly to the door, and he's got the combination right on the door and how to unlock it. And it's our job simply to do it. And we all know that that's a hard enough job, right? It's hard enough for us to do it. We've got a very simple memory verse this, this month. For we walk by faith, not by sight. He's given it to us. He's laid it right out. He's, he's opened the door. It's right there. We've just got to walk through it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Walk by faith and not by sight. That's, that's not an easy call. But if the word is very nigh unto us, if God has testified that he has made his word accessible to us, that he has revealed himself unto us, that, that he is not hiding himself from us, but rather he is manifesting himself clearly to us, then naturally God must have designed a means by which for mankind universally to clearly understand what is expected of him. And this is the function of the inspired scriptures. So we have laid down in a brief but somewhat, and I hope somewhat simple manner, that God has designed creation according to a set of definitive standards, not only for the physical world, but also for the metaphysical world. And then that God has seen fit to reveal himself to mankind, not to just, as he has laid upon us the responsibility of discovering the physical world, but he has not laid, us, laid upon us the responsibility of discovering Himself, he has, he, he has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us. And if he's done that, well, then the final step is, how has he chosen to communicate? God has chosen to communicate. How? And this is the doctrine of inspiration. How has God chosen to communicate? A creator God has entered into his creation in order to direct mankind unto himself in the most indelible and accessible way that mankind has at his disposal, through the written word. 2 Peter 1 gives us a little more insight into exactly how this happened. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There are several important principles at play here. First, that the prophecy, that would be scriptures, came not by the will of man, but by the Holy Ghost. That the words of scripture are not the musings of fallible men. It's not just a bunch of smart men who dedicated themselves to sitting up in a mountain somewhere and finding transcendence and then put those things down for us to be able to benefit from. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe one day one of those very smart men uh, you know, had too much pizza before he fell asleep and he had a weird dream and he put it down on a page and now mankind is trying to figure out if that's just indigestion or if it's the, the spirit of God. It didn't work that way, right? Um, we, we, we don't see that these are fallible men who uh, brought about fallible ideas. They were fallible men, but they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. To that end, the scriptures are not subject to the same sort of skepticism and criticism that I would give to the thoughts of fallible men. Second, we see that prophecies of the scriptures were, were indeed penned by men, specifically by holy men of God, specifically as the Holy Spirit of God led them or bore them along, carried them through the process of speaking and writing these words. And this is the answer to the how of inspiration. There's nothing in the scriptures that would lead us to believe that these holy men became automatons, that they were completely taken over by God and, and did an automatic writing process, that God possessed their bodies and wrote through them in some sort of automatic way, nor that the scriptures were penned through a process of dictation, that men actually heard the vo vocal voice of God and that they just wrote the words that God told them to write from this dictated sort of way. We don't see anything that implies either of those. Uh, we do see in the Old Testament prophets who the Lord spoke to them and said, speak these words, but we don't see that in every account, in every instance, uh, by far. 
But rather, we do see what 2 Peter 1 tells us, that holy men of God were filled with the Spirit of God, using their own minds, using their own context for life, their own personalities, penned the very words that God desired them to pen, in order that mankind would be given exactly what God wanted them to have, so that we can know the rules by which this world operates. And in aligning ourselves with those rules, we can find good success. And this is exactly what the next part of the text says, that the inspired scriptures, the words penned by holy men of God, but breathed by God himself through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that these scriptures are profitable. And he gives four contexts within which they are profitable. He says profitable for doctrine. This word meaning instruction. That the word of God is profitable to instruct man in the way that he should go. And that as we who love the scriptures know so well, not only instruction about how to relate ourselves to this world and to one another, but so much more importantly than just how I should relate myself to you or how I should relate myself to the things of this world to find good success, the scriptures teach us it is doctrine, instruction on how to relate myself to God, how I should be related to God himself. The created order can tell us of the existence of God. We saw that from Psalm 19. But did you catch in Psalm 97 that the created order can also tell us of the righteousness of God? The created order can tell us of the reality of sin and through our inbuilt conscience, even the reality of judgment and the fact that man is separated from God through sin. But you know what? Though the created order can tell me that God exists and that God is righteous, Though my own moral conscience can tell me that I am a sinner and that by, by virtue of that sin I have been separated from God, only special revelation can tell me how it is I can be restored in fellowship to God. General revelation, as we'd call it, the created order, my conscience, it can get me so far as to show me the reality of God's righteousness and my own condemnation, but it cannot show me redemption. I need special revelation to show me redemption. Only special revelation can instruct me on how to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Only special revelation can tell me that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Only special revelation can show me the door by which if any man enter in, he will be saved. So the scriptures are profitable for doctrine. I need this instruction. I need this special revelation to show me the solution to my sin problem. It's also profitable unto reproof. This word reproof, literally meaning evidence or proof or refutation, contained within the word of God is the testimony to the fullest nature of the broken creation, how we were created, why the world is so broken. This is such an important element for us to understand. The world is not broken because God broke it. The world is broken because man broke it, right? We need to know that. Special revelation tells us that. General revelation shows us that the world is broken. I need special revelation to tell me why it's broken. Why all of the things that my heart compels me unto for satisfaction end up leaving me empty and unfulfilled. The world is grasping and they go to all of the things that the world has to offer. They go to the materialisms and the lusts and the covetousness and the desires and they seek to them because the world tells them that within them they'll find satisfaction and then they engage in them and as Solomon so rightly claims in Ecclesiastes, they find it all to be vanity and vexation of spirit and they say, why? It doesn't make sense, but we have a book that makes sense of it. And only through this special revelation are you going to be able to make sense of why it is everything that your body craves, everything that your flesh longs for, leaves you empty and hollow and unsatisfied. This special revelation, as God progresses through it, traces the history of how mankind has related himself to God's attempts to reveal himself and proves beyond a doubt that man in himself is wholly incapable of righteousness, is wholly incapable of self-satisfaction. He has absolutely no hope, apart from divine intervention, of relating himself properly to God's design and God himself, and we need special revelation to tell us that. God's word is the light that shines into the darkness and exposes it within this world. It exposes it within me. 
It refutes the notion that man can be the arbiter of his own destiny without failure or consequence. It refutes the notion that man is the source of his own salvation, convincing men of God, of his character, of his power, of his righteousness, of his judgment, calling men to align with him. The scriptures are profitable unto this instruction, but also profitable unto this reproof. The scriptures are, third, profitable unto correction. This is the natural step, next step following reproof. If reproof is the refutation of all of mankind's thinking and actions, if reproof is that which shows me that my own solutions are not sufficient, well, then correction is how I realign, right? Instruction tells me that there is a God. Reproof shows me that things are broken. Correction shows me how to correct it. It is the rebuilding process that necessarily must take place following the tearing down of misconceptions and selfish notions of personal righteousness and capacity. The scriptures are profitable to show us the reality of our own incapacities, to reveal our own unrighteousnesses, and then to help us understand how to properly align ourselves with the created order, both physical and metaphysical, so that we function as God has designed us to function. First, we must be unwind from the twisting effects of sin upon our spirit and our mind and our body, and that's the reproof. That's the untwisting of all of the mangled mess of worldly philosophy and personal self-righteousness that inculcates my, my, my mind and body. And then correction is properly aligning myself with the world as it actually exists, by properly aligning myself with the Word of God. Finally then, once we have been received this doctrine and then been reproved and corrected, we can flourish in that which God has designed. And that's the idea of instruction in righteousness. The word instruction here literally means training, discipline, chastening. It's the same word that we have referenced in our evidence of salvation. Recall that when we talk about the five evidences of salvation, one of them is in Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible says that if a man is not chastened of the Lord, then he is an illegitimate child, right? And to this end, the chastening hand of the Lord is one of the things that I look to in my life as an evidence that I am, in fact, a child of the living God. And I have for years given you a somewhat limited context to that word, chastening. And maybe through my presentation, it's been limited in your mind a little bit, and I'd like to correct that today. Paul in Hebrews 12 invokes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where Solomon calls upon his son, my son, despise not the chastening hand of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, even as a father of the son in whom he is well pleased. To this end, the idea of correction within the context Correction of sin is connected to that concept of chastening, and rightly so. But the word chastening, that concept of the chastening hand of the Lord, is not only the idea that when I am living in sin, I am convicted and corrected. Chastening is far more broad and far more complete than that as a concept. It characterizes the entire process of molding and shaping the character of a person of formulating them into that which God would have them to be. So within the scope of this word is certainly me disciplining my child for obvious and notable wrongs. To, to correct my child or to instruct my child, one of the things that I have to be doing is to not spare the rod, right? Is to discipline my child, to um, bring about a, a form of chastening when my child does wrong. But there's significantly more than that to instructing a child, isn't there? Really, the whole point of chastening the child is to get him to listen, <laughs> is to bring about in him a, a tenderness of spirit so that he will receive my instruction properly. And once I have brought about that tenderness or receptivity in spirit by breaking his will and by thus aligning him with me, then I can go about to help my child in other ways, 
Help my child learn how to properly relate himself to the suffering of the world around him. Help my child handle his feelings of anger when they arise in him. Help my child understand how to combat the devil through memorization of scripture and through uh, prayer. And all of these are a part of instruction, right? It's all a part of chastening. It's all a part of the process of teaching my child. It's a part of the process of correcting my child so that when my child is using a hammer wrong, I say, no, I'm not going to spank my child, right? But I'm going to go up and I'm going to say, no, son, you need to change the way you're using a hammer so you don't hit your thumb, so you don't hit your head, depending on how my child is using the hammer on any given day. And you correct your child, you instruct your child, you bring about in your child an understanding. You see how your child is, is relating themselves to the world. You see how they are improperly relating themselves to the world. And then you go about the process of helping your child reorient himself to the world so that they are properly related. And this is how I train, instruct a child. It's all a part of the discipline process, the chastening as the Bible defines it. And this is instruction in righteousness. And notice the end unto which these scriptures are sent. So these scriptures are given in order to instruct, to, to show us how to relate ourselves to God, to show us who God is. Then to reprove, to unwind us from the, the mangled way of thinking that, that we are inculcated in in this world. Then to correct us, that is to realign ourselves properly with the way God has actually designed the world. And then to discipline us, to show us how it is that we can be be, be properly um, brought into a place of flourishing and success by aligning ourselves with the individual principles of what God has given to us. And maybe some of you are, are in different places of that process. The first place of that process, the doctrine, that would be the part where you're being introduced to God. Most of us have gotten there. But maybe you're still being untwisted from the world. And God is still unwinding you as you read the Word of God. Maybe you're really in that process of being rewound. You're, you're being uh, reoriented to the world as it properly exists. And then the whole point of that is to get us to the point where we are then being instructed in righteousness, where each day is training in faith and in obedience and in, in um, the virtues of Christ so that we can find good success. Unto this end that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We've seen throughout the scope of 2 Timothy 2 and 3 very strong exhortations unto proper study, proper conversation, and careful truth. These things have taught us how to relate ourselves to scriptures so that the scriptures can work their desired and intended effect in me. And the intended effect, as I study scripture properly, as I appropriate scripture properly, is that I would be finished or completed, that I would be equipped unto every good work, that I would be accomplished and usable to God. And this is the concept we saw in chapter 2, that if a man purge himself from lusts and subversive studies, that he will be made a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. That man who is sanctified and meet for the master's use, that's the man who is perfect and thoroughly furnished. Perfect does not mean sinless. Perfect does not mean morally pure. Perfect means finished or complete, having all that is required unto one's nature or kind. So the scriptures, through teaching, refutation, correction, and training, they first reconcile us to God, then they make us usable to God, and finally, by consequence of our alignment with God, cause us to design in God's created order. Flourish in God's created order, excuse me. Now, before applying these principles this morning, I need to transition back to the academic and the practical for just a few moments, and then I'm going to come back to the more exhortative. Those of you who are familiar with our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration know that inspiration itself is only a, a part, a subset of the whole truth related to our confidence in the scriptures. Inspiration only speaks to the manner in which God transmitted his word to mankind in its original form. The only text that was given that was truly God-breathed was the first text that those holy men of God penned as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Only the first generation of any given text was actually inspired, God-breathed. The fact that a text is inspired 
in no way implies that now, anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 years later, we have what God inspired. And this is where a second very important doctrine comes in. And the second very important doctrine, a companion doctrine to inspiration, is what we call the doctrine of preservation. That not only did God originally inspire his word, so that when each of the individuals that wrote the text of the Bible was writing it, they were borne along or carried along by the Spirit of God so that they wrote the very words that God intended them to write, but that God also, by the testimony of the Scriptures themselves, preserved His Word unto every generation so that each generation has continued to have access to copies of God's inspired Word. And this is very important. If you've ever played a game of telephone, you know how important this is. Because if you've ever played a game of telephone, we could do it here today. If we've gotten one big circle and I said, I, I gave a phrase and we passed it around, whispering it in each person's ear, that phrase from person to person to person to person, by the time it got back to me, it would say, it would sound nothing like what I said, right? This is what we call transcription error or copy error. Mankind is really bad at preserving things without twisting them, confusing them, copying them. There's some process by which the transmission breaks down. So if this book has been around for thousands of years, the doctor of inspiration is not going to give me any measure of personal confidence that what I have today is what God inspired 2,000 years ago. That's where the doctrine of preservation comes in. So Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. David writes, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We read in the Psalm of David a confidence that though the wicked seem to prosper and, ungodly men, and godly men seem to have failed from among the children of men, Yet God's word will not fail. Yet God's word is indelible. Man may fail. Man may flee. Right? The righteous men may disappear from the earth, but God's word will not fail. God's word will not go away. Though the wicked will have their day, the word of God will not be confounded. It will not be frustrated in this day or any day. What God has decreed will come to pass. God's word shall stand. God has purified his word, and he will preserve it for the benefit of every generation of mankind. Then to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. We already read verse 26. Let's read the verses gearing up to that. Verses 23 through 25, Peter writes, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which, uh, which by the gospel is preached unto you. The things of this world will fade away. They will fall away. Everything standing today will one day end up in obscurity and disrepair. We've even seen that the legacies of men, you say, well, yeah, physical buildings go away, but legacies endure forever. No, they don't. The legacy of Thomas Jefferson, the legacy of George Washington, what's happening to that legacy today? In a generation, will the history books see them as great men or will the history books see them as tyrants? Good question. I don't know the answer to that one. Legacies don't even last, do they? But the word of the Lord, the Bible says, endures forever. Simply put, the clear and unambiguous testimony of the doctrine of inspiration in the scriptures, that God inspired his word, that the words of God were penned by holy men of God as God carried them along, is of no value if God did not also divinely preserve his word. If the first generation had it, and today I have something that maybe kind of sort of, maybe sort of looks like it, it's of no value to me. If the word of God is what was penned perfect in its original form, and now 2,500 years later, I've got 75% of it still true, that would be a miracle by man's standards. But what 25% of it is wrong? Is that 25% like Chronicles or Numbers? 
Is it the genealogies? Or is that 25% John and Romans? Which 25% is wrong? If we've got 75% accuracy, human miracle. You see the problem? If, if God just wound up the clock of his scriptures and then let mankind do his thing, and if God is trusting man to preserve his word so that we're going to be going through this process of tedious criticism to find out exactly what, what was, and we're, we acknowledge that we're never going to get back to it, and I'm getting into some deeper weeds here for those of you that are familiar. If you're not familiar with textual criticism, um, we'll talk about it another time. But if man has gone through this tedious process and this constant renewal of using these humanistic methods to be able to find out what is probably lost anyway, but at least get close, then God's word is no good to me because I can't trust it because I don't know if it's true. But see, if God has taken it upon himself to preserve his word, thou shalt keep it, thou shalt preserve it to every generation. The Lord does it. The Lord is not... He, he has taken it upon himself to preserve his word. And if God has both inspired and preserved it for every generation, then my confidence is that what I have is what God wants me to have. And then I can build my life upon it. And I can live based upon it. If God inspired his word through holy men, moved by the Holy Ghost, only then to allow it to fall prey to the constant and inevitable corrupt, cor corruption and manipulation of mankind so that what we have today is not what God gave, then God's efforts through inspiration were in vain. Inspiration of the original documents only has value if God has gone out of his way to preserve his word so that every generation can know God's word. And as we know already from the scriptures, God desires to communicate with mankind. God desires us to know him. If God desires us to know him, if he has gone out of his way to communicate to us, then why would he allow that to be lost? It doesn't make any sense. There could be no doubt, coupled with the testimony of what we just read in the word itself, that God has preserved his word if he went through the trouble of revealing himself to mankind. If he wants us to know him, and he's gone out of his way for us to know him, then he's going to give us what we need to know him. We can trust that. And just quickly in passing, I, I will take no time to defend this, though I do in the About Legacy course. And as I said, I'll likely do a teaching on it at some point other, in another form. This is also the reason why we use the King James Bible. Because the Greek text that underlies the King James Bible called today the Textus Receptus, which has, had been used um, by no translation. It has been used by no translation since the mid to late 1800s. Other translations, every translation from about 1881 on has used what we call the critical Greek New Testament. The Textus Receptus bears the marks of preservation. The critical Greek New Testament did not exist before 1831. It was in its more full form in 1881 through the West Cotton Hort text. And then I believe it's the Revised Standard Version became the first version to be translated out of that text. And the world has never looked back. Every single translation since then has been translated out of that text. But that text did not exist before 1831. So how can we say that God's word has been preserved from generation to generation and he's given it to his church and he's preserved it through his church through a text that did not exist before the 1800s? And so we fall back upon the English translation that was based upon the Greek text that bears the clearest marks of God's preserving work. And that translation is and only is the King James Version of the Bible. That's the only one. All of the other ones are from the critical Greek text to lesser or more degrees. And I have no confidence in that text. And so, and it doesn't mean that it's a bad translation. It just means that it's a bad, or it's a good, it could be a good translation, but it's a good translation of a bad Greek text. So I can have no confidence in it. 
or less confidence in it. Can I put it that way? So we use the King James Bible. The King James Bible gives the reader maximum confidence that what he has is what God intended him to have. While other translations, as I mentioned, were perhaps very competent in translational quality, fundamentally, they lack a clear and unambiguous legacy of preservation. Modern Greek texts don't have that legacy of preservation, therefore, we're not comfortable with those translations. Now, I'm not telling you today that if you use a different translation or that if you, uh, whatever case may be, that you're ungodly or whatever the case may be. All I'm saying is, this is why we use the King James Version. This is why I preach from it. This is why we read from it. This is why we memorize from it. This is why we place our confidence in it. Because it gives us maximum confidence. Because it's the, it is the translation of the Greek text that has the clearest record of preservation. Whereas the modern Greek text instills in the heart of the reader maximum uncertainty in God's word. And this uncertainty carries over into the English translations. Now, I know that that was quick and dirty. And if you have questions, of course, come see me. Go through the legacy course. Um, I have my own lessons on the topic. I'd love to talk with you about those things. Don't just Google King James only. You're not going to find the resources that are going to help you. Um, but you can come see me. And I'd be happy to talk with you about those things. I know I also left a ton out. There's a lot of questions that I didn't answer. So then how do we know that the 66 books are all the scriptures, right? Why is it only 66? How do we know that there's not a bunch more floating around there? How do we know that, that uh, there's not too many? All the scriptures are given by inspiration of God, but what if these aren't the scriptures? What if these aren't the true scriptures that are being used? These questions are valid, and um, there are valid and reasonable answers to them as well. Um, they're for another day. I know I'm kind of slinging you back and forth between the academic and the practical today. I'm sorry if I've given you a bit of spiritual whiplash, but I wanted to get that in there. I wanted to main, uh, give us a statement of remembrance as to why it is we use the King James Version and why it is that, that we have chosen to do so. We've not chosen to do so simply because we're traditionalists or because it sounds Bible-ish or any of, the, any of those things. We use it because by study, by reason, through history, through understanding the doctrines of the scriptures, we have come to the conclusion that it is the best translation of the Bible to use. And so we use it. If it weren't, we wouldn't. In the remaining time today, I'd like to apply. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm only going to highlight one application, one thought this morning, and leave the remainder to the Spirit of God. And I'm going to give you a three-part thought process by which we establish the relevance of the reality that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God to our daily lives. So it's one application, but it's in three parts. And it's this. Truth is not created, truth is not defined, truth is identified. The scriptures are God-breathed and so are truth. It is not my right or privilege to define truth. It's my responsibility and privilege to identify truth and to align with truth. Truth is not created. Truth is that which reflects reality as it exists what we might call objective truth, or uh, capital T truth, is truths that are the same for everyone throughout time. There are subjective truths, things which are true for me and not for you. We talked about this just a couple weeks ago, right? If I said broccoli is delicious, true or false? True, true, false, 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 true. We're gonna get a lot of different answers. And it's, it's, it's not that you're wrong if you don't, if you say true and you say false, neither one of you is wrong because I'm asking for an opinion. But if I say broccoli is green, barring some uniqueness like mold or um, some uniqueness like colorblindness, I'm going to get true across the board because there is an objective reality to the color of broccoli, regardless of whether or not you think it's delicious. One is objective, one is subjective. There are subjective truths. And what the world has tried to do today is say, because subjective truth exists, subjective truth doesn't. That's a logical fallacy. It's absolutely absurd. 
We live in a society that is increasingly attempting to deny this very existence of objective truth. We're right now talking through evangelism in our Sunday school hour. If you cannot get a person to admit that truth exists, you're going to have a hard time convincing them of the truth of the gospel. This creates a uniqueness to evangelizing in our society where you don't necessarily start with Jesus. You start with, there is such thing as truth. And Jesus had to go there too, right? What is truth, right? When Jesus uh, stood before Pilate, he asks, what is truth? It's not the first generation we've had to deal with this. Helping people understand that there is objective reality. Truth is something which exists outside of my perceptions, outside of my definitions, outside of my existence, outside of any influence or any trend. Truth does not change from generation to generation. Truth is not susceptible to the whims of culture, to fads, to philosophies. Truth exists, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we see it or not. And as the scriptures are breathed by God, penned by the Holy by holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and as the Spirit of God is truth and is no lie, 1 John 2, 27, 1 John 5, 6 tells us God is truth. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Since Christ is truth, the Spirit of God is truth, and in him is no lie, then that which God breathed and man penned, if it is, if it is literally breathed by God, if it is literally, literally born along, by the Holy Spirit of God, then it is truth. Regardless of whether or not I agree with it, whether or not I like it, whether or not I regard it. And as we have an excellent and affirmed translation of that divinely inspired and perpetually preserved scripture in our King James Bibles, what we hold in our hands is true. And so is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that you and I may be perfect, finished or complete, having all that is necessary to our nature and kind, throughly furnished unto all good works. And finally, it is not my right or privilege to define truth. It is my responsibility and privilege to identify it and align with it. I do not have the right to judge the book. The book judges me. One of the great tragedies of translational philosophy today is it has brought us to a place where if a person reads the Bible and reads a passage of Scripture and doesn't really like what it says, they go find a translation that's going to give them a little bit more of what they're looking for. That when a pastor is preaching from the pulpit, he'll use a, uh, one translation normally, but then he'll say, I like better what it says in this translation. And it starts to work some wiring in our brain that says, well, why? Why did you just jump from that translation to this translation to get the Bible to say what you wanted to say? Now, what the pastor's probably actually saying is, I feel like this is a better translation. But that's not really what comes across. What comes across is, I like what this Bible says better. One of the biggest questions I have when a person's asking for a Bible in the jail is, which Bible should I choose? They, they all say different things. And those of us who know the Bible better might argue, well, not really. But what does it say when an entire generation of people are reading multiple translations and saying, oh, they all say something different? What does that say about the authority of the Word of God? A few minutes ago, we went to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 to understand how it was that God inspired His Word through holy men of God moved to the Holy Ghost. Recognizing that it is my privilege to pull from the book its truths, not to read into the book truths. In the verses just previous, verses 16 through 21, Peter writes this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, that would be Jesus, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And this voice which came from heaven, we heard. Peter was an eyewitness to that, right? An ear witness to that. Peter, James, and John. When we were with him in the holy mount. But notice this, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is a private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What we have in the scriptures are not cunningly devised fables. Thoughts of clever and ambitious men, either men trying to do good by their society or men simply trying to make money or earn fame. The men that we see recorded in the Word of God, in the New Testament in particular, these men walked with Jesus. These men talked with Jesus. These men were eyewitnesses. Peter was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. He heard the voice from heaven. He saw the glory. Peter was literally there that day. And notice what he says in verse 19. We, the church, who have not seen the risen Lord, the majority of the people Peter was writing to had not seen the risen Lord. And yet, Peter says, we who did not hear the voice at the Mount of Transfiguration, we who were not witnesses to Christ arrayed in the glory of God, we have a more sure word of prophecy than anything Peter had. That's a startling statement, isn't it? Peter says you have something that is more sure and more confident, something you can rely upon more than I have, simply by my eyewitness account of the transfiguration and hearing the actual voice of God say, this is my son, hear him. We have a greater proof than anything Peter had, and that proof is the word of God, given to holy men who were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then notice verse 20. The Bible is not a book that is open to private interpretation. God has not given me the right to interpret the Bible to fit my way of thinking or to conform to my understanding or to conform to culture. We are not in a modern art class here where we put a verse on the, on the screen and everyone stares at it and tells us what it makes them feel and what it means to them and you walk away with warm fuzzies inside. The Word of God is objective. It has a meaning. It bears truth. And it's not my job to define it. It's not my job to create it. It's my job to, align, uh, to identify that truth and to align with it. The Bible has a meaning. It speaks a truth. And it's my privilege to spend the rest of my life, all of my days, plumbing the depths and discovering the truths that God has put in it. And this is what we seek here at Legacy Baptist Church. When we stand before the throne of God one day, I am sure there will be things that I messed up on. There will be teachings that I gave you which were not correct. I'm, I'm, I guarantee you. I'm fallible. I don't understand everything. I do not have all the answers. I've had to make corrections just today. I had to tell you that I have been limiting the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 12, that word chastening, and I had to broaden it because the scriptures because I studied that word more and I learned more about it. I had to correct myself. Get used to it. It's going to happen again. But I can tell you this, that when we get to heaven, what we're going to find is that anything that I messed up on, I messed up on because I was not aligned with this book. The book didn't mess up. The book didn't mislead me. The word of God did not cause me to go astray. It was my understanding of the word. It was my understanding of the book. These times of growth, of change, of correction, of betterment, the times where we get things wrong and we have to identify them and realign or align better, these things are going to happen. We will naturally fall short of perfection in interpretation, perfection in obedience because we are so terribly human. But let it be our determination that we're never going to get to the place in our church or in our lives where we're reading something, we know exactly what it means, but we twist it, contort it, 
misalign it specifically to fit our narrative, to fit our preconceived notions, to fit our desires. That's the danger. That's what, what, what I desire when I stand before God one day to not hear. God, God might look at me and say, you know what? You misinterpreted that passage and you misinterpreted that and you missed it here and you told them that there and that wasn't right. But God forbid that it should be you knew what that passage said and you twisted it. You knew what that said and you distorted it. And you distorted it specifically because you had a narrative to fill. That's what we want to avoid. Let us be determined not to follow cunningly devised fables, not to use the word of God deceitfully, not to strive about words to no profit, but rather to submit ourselves to the inspired and preserved word of God as truth, to seek with all our heart that we might identify those truths and joyfully align with them while we do. And as we do so, God help us that we will become exactly what God would have us to be, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.